This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. In this Coach Developer Conversation, I speak to professional storyteller and all-round language rock star, Claire Murphy. We explore what is storytelling, its history, how it can enable risk-taking, build empathy, and act as an all-round superpower for coaches wanting to build connection. So, take some notes, press pause, consider what this means to your coaching, and enjoy the next hour or so of Claire talking to yours truly. Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by the fantastic storyteller, Claire Murphy. Claire, welcome to the podcast today. Tom Hartley, it's so lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. And you full named me at the start. That doesn't normally happen. It's great. I can't help it. In my family, we play with names all the time. So a lot of my friends and even my fella, my fiance, I call him by his last name, walking around the house. So it's a, it's actually a mark of endearment to use your whole name. Nice. I'll take that. That's good. That's a nice start. <laughs> Claire, tell us, who are you and what, what do you do? I love it. Start with the biggest question, existential crisis. So I am Claire Murphy, Claire Moran Murphy, if we're going to go for the full the full name, and I am a storyteller. Sometimes I say I'm a professional storyteller because people don't think it's a job. And the inevitable next question is, well, what do you do for a living? So this has been my full-time only job for 16 years. I got started as a storyteller, a performance storyteller in the west of Ireland in Galway. And I feel like it happened by accident. I, I wasn't planning on becoming a storyteller. But a series of inevitable events led me to become a storyteller. And within about a year of performing, I noticed that people started asking me to teach so I started, you know, the way I think you probably find this in coaching, Tom, but when you have to break down what you do to teach it, you understand what you do a lot better. And I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught. I have, I have had a few teachers along the way with storytelling, but a lot of it has been me watching other people. So I started breaking down what I was doing and what other people were doing and, and compartmentalizing that and being able to teach it on to teachers, first teachers and librarians, and then people in academia started asking me to teach them and what I realized is that everybody in the world has to talk about what they do, but not very many people are taught how to do that. So I found a great joy in teaching and that work then spread further out. So I started working with community groups. I started working with international groups, like people who've been displaced from their countries and moved to Ireland. And then recently in the last 10 years, I've started working with scientists who are just a beautiful cohort of people. And they need lots of help with talking about what they do because what they do is brilliant, but they often work in isolation and they're not they're not helped on how to translate their data into something like a story. And sports, I've been in working in sports for the last four years and mission critical teams over in the States. And basically, I will work with anyone because story goes everywhere. So my work is a mix. I, I spend a good deal of my time creating work and performing stories for adults, sometimes for children. And the rest of the time I'm teaching or training or consulting and helping people use story wherever they are in the world and however it can serve them. So how does, how does storytelling help scientists? Because that sounds fascinating. Well, I always think of scientists as the brains of humanity. And they're there, you know, working away on all these really big issues that we need, we desperately need. I mean, look at the vaccine, right? There's a prime example. 
you suddenly had worldwide collaboration, everyone sharing data. And, you know, you, you've got to imagine they put in such long hours making that vaccine. You've got to imagine there were a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of scientists not seeing their families. But when they then go to talk about what they do, they're coming out of a real science paradigm. So they use a lot of their jargon, their lexicon of terms. And I'm sure you have it in UK coaching, right? There's a whole series of words that are special to coaching and special to sports, same in science. If you start using that when you're front facing, when you're public facing, you'll isolate the public because they won't know what you're talking about. And then the public will feel stupid and they'll shut down and they won't listen. And also, if you're too attached to data, scientists can have been taught to be what they call objective. Now, no one can see this, but I'm doing my inverted commas around the word objective because there's no objectivity. Because you're a human being, you have bias. So scientists will always deliver as, as try as they might. They'll always they'll always be a subjective lens. So I encourage them to figure out what their subjective lens is and also to embrace their passions because there's people out there working on, honestly, this is some people I've met in the last couple of years here in Bristol. There's a guy working on self-healing rubber for spacecraft so that when there's an accident in space, the spacecraft will heal itself. So, And you want these people to be able to talk about these things because they need to get funding. We need to fund all of this research, not just for spacecraft, but for vaccines and medicines and climate change solutions. Unless they can talk about what they do, no one's going to fund them or listen to them. Their work's not going to go very far. They're going to be stuck in that little lab. So, yeah, I have a huge grow, the Irish word for love. I have a huge grow for scientists and helping them get wherever they need to go. And I think I would have been a scientist if I had chosen a different path, you know. So. Wow, that, that sounds fantastic. Um You've um, you've inspired me there. There's some brilliant, brilliant stories you've just told. So, okay, so I'm, I'm a coach who works with a team or um, I might be a tutor who's working with a group of coaches or a coach developer helping someone. Why then will storytelling help me? Why will this conversation be useful for them? How long have you been a coach? 20 years or so. How many athletes and sports people have you worked with at a guess? Oh, I don't know, countless, um, say a, a thousand perhaps. Okay, so tomorrow you walk into a room and you meet a new athlete, you've been asked to coach this specific athlete. You walk into that room and that 20 years experience is gonna serve you in that moment, right? You're gonna take one look at that athlete, so you're working in women's soccer right now, you take one look at her, the goalie, and you're already using all of your tacit knowledge. How old is she? How long has she been on the team? Has she come from somewhere else? How fit is she? Has she got any injuries? Like your brain is doing all of those things automatically because you have tacit knowledge from all of your experience. But what if you've decided, you decide in a week to retire? How do we get all of the knowledge from Tom Hartley's brain? And story is a vehicle for knowledge transfer. So story is a way for you to take the tacit knowledge from your, from your body and your brain that's living in you and you use it all the time and it allows you to make meaning of it for two reasons. One is for yourself so you can figure out what it is you know and the other is for everyone else because you can, you can say to someone when you first meet an athlete you should definitely do a data, you know, data drive, make sure you know their list of injuries da, da, da. or you can tell the story of walking into a room and meeting an athlete and what, you, you know, that experience and if you tell the story it's going to pass on that knowledge a little bit faster because of the way our brains respond to data versus story. 
So it's a way for coaches and coaches are fantastic observers of human behavior. That's what you do all day, every day. And I feel like a lot of coaches don't value their own experiences and their own lived stories. They don't see them as valuable for a number of reasons. So they don't tell them. They think it's more important to talk about a model or a theory or a this or a that or this bit of data coming out of New Zealand. or, or And that is true. That's useful. But your tacit knowledge after 20 years, it's a unique data set that's not being tapped into, I think. Okay. Now, that, that makes more sense to me. Uh, I can see how then that would, would win the hearts and the minds, perhaps, of the people that I'm working with. So where does that come from? Is that, is that just a human thing? Is, and you, you mentioned that we, our brains respond differently to stories than, than data. I guess we're evolutionary, I can't say the word properly, we're, we've evolved to a point where, where stories are meaningful to us. Absolutely. And that's what's in our back pocket. So that's what we get to lean into. We're the homo neurons, we're the storytelling ape. And according to evolutionary biologists, we've been telling stories for a hundred thousand years. Now I get this from a book by a wonderful guy called Kendall Haven, H-A-V-E-N, great last name. Your last name is a sanctuary. So Kendall Haven wrote a book called Story Proof. And I love it because he was a scientist. He's become a storyteller. So he's got some really useful data in there. But that's what he talks about. He says that the evolutionary biologists determined that we've been telling stories for 100,000 years, which exactly as you say, is long enough for our brains to have evolved with story. We're so used to story that our brains have evolved to make meaning out of the world through story. And what happens, and I am not a neuroscientist, so I'm going to say this in a very clear way, not a neuroscience way. I've only started dipping into neuroscience in the last five years, and I'm fascinated by it. The brain lights up in a much more complex way when you're listening to a story versus when you're listening to data. So data, I believe, activates the language cortex in the brain. But when you start listening to a story, you get the language cortex, the motor cortex, you get this, you get this fireworks all throughout your brain. And you get a lot of neurochemicals like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, a little bit of cortisol. And that that's your brain is much more engaged so yes we've evolved to make meaning out of the world through story to hold on to knowledge i mean this is what all the folk tales are they're warnings they're how do you how do you take cultural knowledge and pass it on if you know and we do know that civilizations get wiped out again and again and again and everything within that civilization might be washed away all the hard data but mouth to ear that is the effective way to pass on knowledge so something like Red Riding Hood, which everyone would have grown up with, is, orig well, originally, I, I can trace it back about 500 years and then we lose it because it, it's taken off the page. It's an oral source. But it was a warning to women coming of age, so girls coming of age, teenagers, on how to avoid certain dangers when it came to dealing with men. Mm. And, and that was the not and that that's since been sanitized and cleaned up and she's been turned into a little girl and we've got a, a woodcutter that was introduced much much later so if we've evolved to make meaning out of the world through story and we've been doing this for a hundred thousand years and you're not using story when you're teaching training or coaching then you're just working much harder than you have to because your listeners your coaches your athletes will get this response in the brain that kind of forces them to engage that sounds it's the wrong word to use there because you're not forcing them but it makes them buy in in a way that nothing else does 
So you've sold it to me, Claire. It sounds like telling stories just produces all this good stuff in, in the brain, which I suppose makes it sticky, make, makes the story really memorable and maybe the reason why we remember that good film. Um, I watched The Joker the other night. And I can't say I enjoyed the film, but I certainly remembered the film because it probably produced some kind of reaction in me based on what, what was going on there. So you, you, you make, you are, you are a, a rock star storyteller. And I'm sat here thinking, I wish I could tell a story really effectively. But I feel like when I've tried stuff like this in the past, I just ramble on a bit and it gets lost. And I don't know if it's really landed well with the people that I'm speaking to. So talking to me as a novice, where, where, where do coaches start with this stuff? How can we start generating and, and, and telling stories in a way that our audience is really hooked in and it starts to create all that good stuff in people's brain? Brilliant, brilliant question. Just a few things there. So the first thing I'll say is you're not actually a novice. You've been, how old are you, Tom? 37. So 37, so you have about 34 years of telling stories in your your back pocket. What happens when we go to tell them in public is we are much more exposed as a human being and we feel much more exposed and we are very aware of judgment that's coming in and wanting, also you're doing it in your job context, so you want it to be good. You don't want to waffle on. The, The story you tell at the pub is going to be different from the story you tell to the team and I really get that and you want to be good at it. So the first thing to think about is you're not as bad as you think you are <laughs> because those insecurities stop a lot of coaches from ever telling a story. It's worth figuring out who you think is a good storyteller and who isn't and why. It's one of the first things I did as a storyteller. Why is, how has that person engaged me so quickly? And when you start to unpack that, you'll start becoming what my friend Bill Harley in the States is a storyteller and an author and many things, but he has this wonderful poem called Take Nothing for Granted. But in it, he has this line that I use again and again, which is let us become masters of the obvious. Because Tom, you know what a good story feels like. There's no waffle. You get to the point. Everything in the story serves a purpose. It's relevant to the situation. You don't go on too long. You respect your audience, the intelligence of your audience. Something happens in the story that's interesting. There's lots of there's lots of little nuggets that you know. Also, use language that's accessible and understandable without being patronizing, right? So there's lots of things. If you start identifying how you feel when you're listening to a story, you get all the clues and you realize you already know what makes a good story. So when you're getting started as a coach and you want to get better at telling stories, that's the first thing. Find the good storytellers in your field and figure out how they're doing what they're doing. The second thing is you have a lot more in your lived experience that would work as a story. So think about who's the worst coach you've ever met. Now you think your listeners can't see this, but you automatically, you instantly smiled because somebody crossed your mind's eye. <laughs> and you don't want to tell me who that is because this is a podcast and that's fine. But later on, call up a friend and reminisce about who that coach is and why they were so bad. And as you start to break down why they were so bad, think about the particular incidents that happened that pissed everybody off or made a player leave. Or, I mean, I'm sure you've got loads of examples of this just based on your face. Am I right? You can think of someone? There's a few, there's a few things that come to mind, yeah. 
Right. Now, most coaches don't want to tell those stories because they don't want to badmouth people. That's fine. There's going to be some context where you can tell that story and you can anonymize the coaching question. Now, think about some of the greatest players you've ever worked with. Now, that might be because they're high scoring or it might be because they're really good at being on a team or because they intuitively knew what being a captain meant or because there was a really big failure, like really big for everybody, and they were the ones that coped the best with it. So as I'm saying all these things, you're going, yeah, I can see it in your eyes. So the trick is not to say, oh, what are my stories? The trick is to think about who's the best or the worst. What was my first day at the biggest job I've ever had? What was my first day like? When did I want to give up and why? I think a lot about success and failure because I've learned a lot from success and failure. Like I remember being on stage and I had said yes to a gig in Spanish because I speak Spanish. Wow. I never performed in Spanish and I just decided it would be fine until I got to the gig, which I learned very, very quickly was I had traveled 14 hours. I was very tired and I got there and I had not realized that I would be the first on by myself in Spanish for an hour because I hadn't looked closely at my contract. <laughs> I, I had about three hours to get ready and my Spanish brain had not turned on at all because I was jet lagged. And I got on stage and Tom, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. I died on stage over and over for a whole hour. I felt like I'd run a marathon. I was so tired by the end of it. And what happened next was the long dark night of the soul. I had to spend, because I had five more days of performing that I was contractually obliged to, to fulfill. And I had just failed so, so heavily as a performer that I wanted, I'm laughing now because it's much easier in hindsight. But it was the most awful feeling. I don't know if you've ever had this in coaching where you just fail so horribly. And I had to get on stage the next day. So I had to find a way to get myself on stage the next day. And what I ended up doing was changing everything in my approach. And the next day I got on stage in casual clothes. I dialed it all way down the performance side. And I said to the audience, I'm going to make mistakes in Spanish. Actually, I offered to tell it in Irish. And they said, no, that, no, that won't work. And I said, well, I could tell it in English. And they said, no, 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 no. And I said, well, I could tell it in Spanish, but I'm definitely going to make mistakes. And I'm going to not conjugate a verb right. And I'm going to miss words. And they started laughing. And, and they said, it's okay, it's okay in Spanish, all this. And then I said, will you help me if I don't have a word? And they said, yeah, we'll help you. And then I let go of trying to get it right. And I jumped into the stories and I made loads of mistakes. And I kept grabbing at them for words. And they threw words at me. And it became this incredible collaborative process that was the exact antidote to the night before. So when I, when I, I think about that story a lot because I <laughs> learned a lot, very painfully. And when I tell you that, can you think of an event in your life where you failed as a coach or as a leader or, or, or you were part of something that failed? Oh, you, you brought me back, right back to a coaching session that just completely bombed. I remember I was being assessed, so I had, a, had someone come in to watch me and I had a shocking day at work. As in, I was tired, a long day, a couple of stressful meetings, rushing from training, not eating dinner, and just arrived in all the conditions that I know would um, get in the way of me being half good at coaching. And it, it was the worst 45 minutes of coaching I've done. And this was only about seven or eight weeks ago. Um, and I'd said to the person watching me at the end, I said, that was rubbish, wasn't it? 
<laughs> she was really kind. Um, but I came away from it. And actually, like you perhaps, it was an experience that probably helped me reflect on the conditions I need as a coach to be really effective when I come in. So I, I, I went away and reflected on it, thinking, hmm, when am I my best? So when, when I've had some time to prepare, when I'm well fed, uh, maybe when I've been to the gym and I feel like I'm in a physically good place and, and I get there in good time. And for me, I came away from the bad experience thinking, well, I, there's a few things now I've noticed in myself that if I try and get as many of these in place as possible, when I turn up to coach, I'm halfway towards a good coaching session before I've even started because I've looked after myself to begin with. So it was a, it was a shocking experience at the time, but it actually became really helpful. And those make the best stories. And that, that your story that you just told me works as a metaphor for what a lot of people are going through. So eight weeks ago, we were, you know, all of us were feeling that pressure and the buildup of the weeks and the months of the pandemic and what that does to our psyches and the fact that we will drop the ball, you know. So while that is a specific, you, you might think of that as a self-care story. It's also a story about being assessed. It's also a story about the pandemic. It's also a story about being hungry. It's also a story about, you know, forgetting. And when you go to tell that as a story, all I would do to add to that is I would say set the scene. So you told it kind of what I call from the bird's eye view from above. I did this, this and this, and then this happened and she was very kind. Well, what I want you to do next time you tell it is tell us what it was like. Like, were you running through the door that morning? Were you, you know, what, what was the setup? What was happening around you? I ran down the corridor and my laces were untied. My stomach was grumbling. I had two cups of coffee, nothing to eat. Hadn't slept the night before because my, I'm just going to make some stuff up here, you know, because my partner was yelling or my kid was yelling or actually, you know, my mom's sick and I haven't done it. So give the context, set the scene, so that we really understand what, why, what you're walking in with. That activates our empathy and our oxytocin, right? We feel for you. And then take us a little bit into the coaching session. Give us an example of one of the crap things you did, if you're all right with doing that, right? And give us her reaction, where she sat, why, what she looked at, did she take notes, right? Because that makes us feel like we're in the room with you. This is what happens when you really transport somebody into a story, is it forces them, forces them, it's not, again, use of the word force. No, it, in, it invites them to step into your shoes. And if they can fully live that experience with you, their empathy for you is massive. And they know what it feels like to fail, right? So you put us in the room with you and with her. And then that realization, as you say, that was crap, wasn't it? And we're all with you. And then she says, ah, oh, well, you know, you'll do better next time. And I walked out of there. And then you can bring your reflections. But first you take us right into the experience. And you turn on something called, what, that I call, and a lot of people use this phrase, the cinema of the mind. Right. So I see you walking. I see you doing the coaching session. I see her sat in the corner. And as those scenes are painted in my mind's eye, I have a much more visceral experience of it. And so everything then that comes from that, all of the dopamine, the serotonin, the oxytocin. So when scientists and sports people both have a tendency to do this, which is talk about it in the abstract and just give the facts of the story. And I would encourage you, depending on the context, because context is queen in all things, um, Giving a bit more detail can be really, really helpful. Also, in pivotal moments of a story, and don't just tell stories of failure, tell stories of success, tell stories of collaboration, tell stories, you know, there's lots of different kinds of stories. 
tell us how you feel in the moment. So I'm standing there and I've just given this piece, like for, for example, I'm standing there on stage in Tenerife and, I've, and I'm sweating and I'm looking at the audience and I'm thinking they hate me. I can't, why would I do this to myself? How am I gonna find this next word? All of this is happening while I'm standing on stage. And if I give you how I'm feeling in the moment, not in hindsight, the audience feels how you feel. So set the scene. And so those two things are what I call embodying and inhabiting. You inhabit the world of the story. You embody your feelings and thoughts at the time of something critical in the story. And those insights will take us right into your world. So that's how you get better at telling stories is being willing. And it makes you a bit more vulnerable, right? You were definitely vulnerable in sharing these insights. So you have to be comfortable with the stories you're telling. So you have to have processed the story. If it's something really intense or traumatic, you have to make sure that you've processed what's in the story. I don't think in sports world you're going to be dealing with anything too intense or traumatic, but I work with all kinds of people. So you have to put that little caveat out there. Nice. When, when, when you were recapping my story there, it's almost like you had a window into my world of baby up the night before. Yeah, you, you nailed it with some assumptions there, but the, I can just see how, how that detail just, just brings you in. And, and makes you feel it and that cinema of the mind I, I love that turn of phrase Re- rewinding a couple of steps when you were talking about how you approached your second night in, in Spain you talked about a couple of bits and I don't know if I'm I'm missing the point here or if this is part of it and you've alluded to part of this already but that framing of the story it, and and you you kind of saying to the audience I'm going to approach it like this tonight I might, might make some mistakes and then that part where you're asking for a bit of help, kind of engaging the people you're telling the story to in the narrative, are they are they just subtle techniques that that are effective in terms of taking people with you on this journey? Which the the asking for help or I guess engaging your audience and and asking them to be involved to an extent. For me, in that particular moment, it was it was the last straw. I didn't realize it was the golden ticket at the time. I just, I had nowhere else to go, right? So I knew my Spanish wasn't going to be good enough. I knew my performance wouldn't be at my the level that I expected from myself. So I had nowhere else to go other than to lay myself at the feet of my audience and be vulnerable and mm-hmm. say, just acknowledge the awkward and say, I'm I'm not good enough in this moment. Can you help me? And it wasn't a strategy. It was simply all I had left. And when I did it, the love that came back, I have this, I've thought about this for 16 years. Complicity is one of my favorite things about storytelling. So complicity is the relationship between the performer, the teller and the audience. And it's contractual. And there's a series of things that both sides agree to implicitly. So it's very subtle stuff, you know, it's stuff you that you know in your subconscious. And at that moment, I brought it all to the surface and said, I will do my best, but I don't think my best is good enough in your language. But all of them being so kind and gracious and compassionate and because they knew how hard it was to operate in another language, it just created this real moment of humanity. And it allowed me to just create this level between us. And then I could do what I did. So it wasn't a strategy, I don't think it was. It was uh, being backed into a corner. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, when, when we were talking about podcasting and having a brief chat for email before we met virtually, uh, you sent me some bullet points through 
about things that we might get a touch on within the conversation. And one of them which really caught my eye, actually all of them caught my eye, there was one in particular that I thought might be interesting for us to just, just explore a little bit. Uh, it was around kind of how a story can enable risk-taking and, in your words, dismantle old narratives. I just wondered if we could touch on that a bit. Yeah, happy to. So one of the, so stories full of secret powers, and it doesn't. You don't have to be a performance storyteller to activate these powers. These powers are located inside story, right? And one of them is the is the act of transmission. So story is an act of transmission, and what you transmit are what I call the intangibles. So things like belief, courage, fear, resilience, risk taking, love kindness, community, things that you just can't really quantify. And you see this a lot in, well, in medical, there's a, there's a phrase that's used a lot, be more resilient, which is hilarious. Just go, Tom, go be more resilient. Right? <laughs> How is that phrase going to make you more resilient? In the American mission critical teams, it's you suck, suck less. That's the instruction that used to be most common. Like there's nothing in that instruction that's helpful, except a little bit of shame, right? So what a story does is it transmits the experience of the person. So Tom Hartley, eight weeks ago, wrecked tired uh, with all of the stresses of the pandemic and work and life and family shows up and fails, right? At a coaching session that's being assessed. The interesting thing that's transmitted in that story is what happens next. So you reflected on what happened and immediately went, oh, look, I did what I tell people not to do. I didn't take care of myself. I didn't go to the gym. And you made a list of things that you could do differently next time. So someone listening to that story like me, it reminds me that that's something I do. I make a list because I am on waves in this pandemic of doing well and not doing well and doing well and not doing well. And that's what I get from your story. You transmit that to me because you're willing to share that. You're not telling me how to live my life. You're not telling me to be more resilient. You're saying, this is what happened to me. This is what I did with it. And then it's up to me, the listener, with my own intelligence to take that. So I have seen stories transmit all kinds of things. And I'll tell you a direct experience from mine before I tell you someone else's experience with it. I'm in a school in Birmingham. And I'm doing a storytelling workshop and I've given them a task, which is tell the story I just told. And the kids are all doing that. And then I give them another task, which is tell the story you just told. And now the other person's going to be the director. It's a little fun game. You know, you've got power dynamics going on, but you've also got, you start really stretching the story. Yet. So I'm going around and I'm, I'm pointing at the kids and saying, you're the storyteller, you're the director, you're the storyteller, you're the director. I get to these, these two boys and I say, you're the storyteller and you're the director. And the boy says, oh, miss, he doesn't talk. Uh, and I do what you do, right? I went, oh, that's fine. Absolutely. You don't have to talk. I said, you're the observer, right? So very important. You observe. And these two are going to do the storyteller director job. And he gave me a little nod. And I was like, that's fine. Went off, did the exercise, do what I do after an exercise, going in, getting all the feedback. And I get to our, our little trio of, of lads. And I look at the storyteller and say, how did it go? And he's like, oh, miss, that was really hard because he kept interrupting me and da, 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 you know. And then I go to the director, how was that, being a director, having all the power? Oh, you know what? 
he was very good storyteller, Miss, and I, I like being a director, but it was a bit, you know, he told me what he thought. And I turned to the observer and I said, and did they do a good job, those two? And he looked up at me and he said, yeah, I thought actually the storyteller was really, really good. And the director was good at interrupt and he gave me the feedback. And I just looked at him and went, great, thanks a million. And I walked on. Teacher came shooting up to me, got real close, real quiet. And she said, what did you just do? And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, that boy doesn't talk. I said, I know, yeah, someone told me he doesn't talk, but I just asked him a question. She said, no, no, he's a selective mute. He experienced trauma about three years ago and he, he doesn't really speak in school at all. And I took a breath because I, I realized, and this, this has happened a lot in story, that something exceptional happened, that that boy felt safe enough to take a risk in that scenario. And what I thought about for ages afterwards was it was, you know, it was the context of the story that helped him feel safe. So that's one way in which you can transmit risk taking. But the other way, the other side of that, which is more directly related to sports, is I work with the Limbless Veterans, an organization called Blesma. I'd say quite a mouthful, British Limbless Ex-Service Men and Women's Association. So it's a non-governmental charity and they support anyone who serves in the military or army or wherever, and they've lost a limb at some point in their life. And what we do at an organization called The Drive Project is we train them to tell their story. They take their story and they go out into schools and they tell their stories to teenagers because there's a massive mental health crisis amongst teenagers. There's a lot of self-harm. There's a lot of suicidal ideation. Levels of anxiety are very, very high. These men and women walk in or roll in to the rooms and they tell the story and the story might be a car accident. It might be being blown up in Afghanistan. Whatever it is, they tell the story of life before the injury, the injury, and life since the injury. And, I mean, most of these people put you and me to shame in terms of what they've done since being injured. Like, you know, hand-cycled across Iceland, rode across the Atlantic. Like, these are just ridiculously exceptional uh, people who just go, I don't, I don't have any legs, so now I'm going to swim across the Irish Sea. And you just go, of course you are. That, like, that's what I do on a Saturday as well, you know. They're amazing. And when they tell their stories to these kids, we do these feedback forms, we talk to the kids afterwards, and the response time is unbelievable because these kids are all suffering with a lot of different things. And they come up, and the basic response, one of them said, if you can survive being blown up by an IED in Afghanistan, I can survive school. So it's transmission, right? Yeah. These, yeah. these veterans aren't telling anyone how to live their lives. They're just saying, I went through this hell. Here's how I did it. Here's where I am now. And it's up to the kid listening to take what they want. And when I think about sports, you're asking a lot of people in sports and you're working with exceptional human beings who want to push themselves to their limits. And by telling them stories of not just other successes, but... You know, that great moment in the Olympics when the guy from Qatar said, why don't we both have gold? Yeah, yeah. It's that, yeah, the quality that he transmits. And then when we tell his story, that feeling that we get when we think about him. There's so many other stories in sports that I think aren't being told that transmit risk-taking, courage, belief, teamwork, outside of the obvious success stories that just need to be told. In fact, I want to create a, I want to get a bunch of us together and I want to get you all telling me stories. And I just think we should create a book of uh, sports stories from around the world, from all different sports. And not just about the athletes, about the coaches, about the, 
the people who own the teams, about the countries and cities. I think there's a world of stories out there that we, that we, that we could all be using. Yeah, absolutely. That that would be amazing to see, and the power of that is just is just phenomenal. And I think you, you said something a minute ago about people taking what they want from the story and and that part of the transmission. And, and I heard a phrase with a, on another podcast we recorded in this series around specifically around coaching. So saying, well, what you intend to teach isn't what what people always learn. Uh, I can see a, a, a crossover and a symmetry between those two things. Big time. I mean, you know, I don't know if you remember Aesop's fables. Do you remember those? Yeah, uh, vaguely. So the, you know, the tortoise and the hares and Aesop's yeah. fable. And amazing guy, actually, he was a slave in ancient Greece and used the stories to try and sow seeds of rebellion. But what I, what I don't like is people have put the little message at the end. They put the moral that got tagged on. Yeah. Actually, it's much more interesting to just leave the story there and let the audience take, because each person in your team is, is, a, is at a different position in their career and in their mind. And one morning they're tired and one morning they're dealing with whatever. And they take something else. I had someone come up to me after a show. <laughs> I'd done this big show set in Syria about, well, it was about lying and it was about a king and a, all kinds of things. And this woman comes up to me and she goes, that was an incredible show about silence. And I was just thinking, I don't remember it being about silence. But for her, it was about silence. So I didn't mess with that. I just said, thank you very much. That's great. <laughs> you know brilliant there's some magic in that isn't there there's real magic in that a coaching friend Russell Earnshaw Rusty talks about picking people up from different bus stops and dropping them off in different places yeah that's it isn't it what what we what we kind of put out into the world people are going to take on and and use in in lots of different ways who's a who is it for us to say that they have to use it like this um yeah that's fascinating um, Claire, I'm conscious of your time, and I've got a few other things I'd just love to ask you before we finish up today. And and you, you, you've obviously spoken a lot about what's in a great story, the detail you can go to, how you might position it, that type of thing. What about the how? Because when I'm listening to you, you, you pull me in with the way that you speak and the gaps you leave sometimes and, and the intentional pauses and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder, is there anything that, Anybody who, who is thinking about, right, I really want to focus on this next time I speak to an athlete or go to my team, or run, a, run a group in a workshop. Is there anything in the way that you present yourself and actually tell the story that makes a difference in terms of how it's, how it's received and transmitted? You mean in person or online or both? In person, preferably. So, the how... So an odd one, feel your feet on the ground. Okay. And that's to do with making sure you're actually in the space, telling the story, not away in your head. That's one thing. If you're telling, if you're telling a story, you know, you're going to tell us so if you're preparing a story in advance, you know, you're going to tell it to your team, then wake it up before you tell it, wake it up as in walk through it before you tell it. Nice. There was a guy who said he had this story that he relied on for years and he went to tell it at a conference, but he hadn't told it for a year and a half. And he went to tell it and had not woken it up beforehand. So if you don't do that, what will happen is you'll stumble through the story because you're remembering it for the first time. Mm. It's not a, it's like I say, wake it up. But, you know, that's the clear terminology for it. 
don't tell everything. You know, when we're telling a story for the first time, this is why practicing stories is a good idea. Because when you tell a story for the first time, you're telling it to yourself. You're telling all the details. So if I had actually told you the Spain story, the Tenerife story, when I told it to myself, it was, oh yeah, I got up at 3 a.m. and there was an ice storm in Dublin and my flight was delayed and I couldn't get a taxi. And none of that is relevant or needed in this telling of it. So the more you tell it and people think, oh, you can't rehearse the story because that'll kill it. It'll be inauthentic. Actually, if you practice the story, it can get better. There is a point at which you can kill a story from overtelling it, but telling it a few times to figure out what it's about, you know, yeah. will make sure that you're using the relevant details and not the irrelevant details because you don't want to waste your audience's time. To go back to something I said earlier, if you inhabit the world of your story, so if you actually allow yourself for a split second to stand in that hallway right before you go into that coaching session to do that assessment that you did eight weeks ago, if you actually allowed your mind's eye to travel there, your voice will change, your body will change, your description, will, everything will change because you'll see it. And if you see it, we see it. Nice. Okay. And it allows you to be present in the story. So instead of being in the back of your head where you're going, do they like this? Is this working? Am I talking too much? Does this make sense? All of that inner critic stuff gets in the way, will change the way you talk. But if you stand in the story and you've got her eyes on you, and you're trying to coach this person, you've got your heart palpitations and you've got the presence of the walls around you, and all, then you will give all of that directly. You'll transmit that directly to us. Things that you learn later are things like how to control your speed because your audience are always three to five seconds behind you. Okay. Because when you pause, you think, oh my God, I've paused. Everyone's looking at me. Ah, I want to die. I want to leave. Why are they all looking at me? None of your audience are thinking that. Because your audience are constructing the image you've just made and the brain is catching up. Which is why we get really frustrated when people speak too quickly. Because you're, if you can't build the story in your head, the cinema of the mind, you will stop paying attention because your brain can't keep up. That makes a lot of sense. I, I heard someone say recently that communication is in the silence. Which, which I guess, I guess that just echoes what you just said. Yeah, I heard another beautiful thing, which is silence is itself its own language. I think that's Hanef Kureyeshi. I collect quotes all the time, and I, I got to keep trying to remember who's saying them. But we don't, we don't trust silence nearly enough. That's a brilliant message. I think for coaches as well, who. Not everyone, but coaches perhaps I've seen sometimes feel like they have to interrupt the silence constantly because otherwise they're not necessarily doing their job. But maybe the silence is a coaching intervention in itself. It's part of it. I've had some coaches tell me, well, I've only got 10 minutes with the team before they go on. And, you know, there's three coaches and each of the coaches has 10 minutes. And so they go on and they talk as fast as they can for 10 minutes. And I'm just sitting there going, well, you've lost so nine minutes of what you've said hasn't been heard because your players are trying to get ready to go on I know what it's like before I'm going on I have seriously limited uh, internal retention of anything before I do a show so I assume it's similar when you're doing a, a big game you're like yes. in the zone and your coach is going to come talk at you for 10 minutes you're better off saying one thing well 
than 500 things that don't get heard. Yeah. And the other thing, the other thing for coaches, just to add in, is is a story will keep working for you long after you tell it. It, it, it's so sticky. Like I had one guy on one of the mission critical teams said he still remembered a story six years on that one of his teachers had given him. So the lessons inside the story just keep working on the psyche long after you're gone. So it kind of cuts your work in half. Love that. Do you know, do you know what, uh, Claire, for anyone who knows me, they, they know I love a quote. Um, I've, I've maybe made about six or seven uh, references to what you've said on my notepad in front of me, which I shall pour over later on. <laughs> John, you're going to have to send them back to me because I, I generally don't remember what I've said after I've said it. I had someone come up to me at a at a show in the States. They were going to be introducing me and they said, we're going to, I'm going to introduce you, but I'm going to, I'm going to read this out. And they read out this quote. I said, Jesus, that's great. Who said that? And they started laughing. They said, you said it. <laughs> So yeah, please send me my quotes back to me. I'll add them to my own. I, I gather pages. I've got, I think, 10 documents now. One of them is 60 pages long of quotes from other people. I find it so helpful. I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. This is the perfect antidote to a, to a long week at work. Um, I, I, two, two final things just to touch upon before we, before we wrap up. I'd love to know, kind of, if if you could signpost our listeners off who, who have enjoyed the conversation and want to go and find out some more. You've you've mentioned a few people throughout the call who do some of this stuff really well. So I was wondering, on one hand, um, if if you could point point us in a few directions of where people might want to go and explore stuff. And and the other point was all back, back in your world and and what what are you working on at the moment and, and what's going to be coming up for you in in the next kind of few weeks and months. All right, so things to think about and books and stuff to read. So there's a guy in the States who's written something called Story Worthy, a guy called Matthew Dix, and I heard him on the Art of Manliness podcast, and I thought there was some really useful stuff in there in terms of telling personal stories, so that might be a good place to go. Kendall Haven's book, Story Proof, is very useful as a reference point for why storytelling works, and if you want to get some some things on the neuroscience, uh, he touches on that. Another good source for neuroscience references, because I know that'll be helpful, is Paul Zak, Z-A-K. And he, he's the founder of the Center for Neuroeconomics. So he's got some interesting stuff on trust, but he also ties into narrative. And the main person I've come across in neuroscience is Yuri Hassan, H-A-S-S-O-N, and he's a TED Talk and it's more, he goes more deep into the science of narrative, which is good. But in terms of telling stories, I would say there's some real world podcasts like The Moth and things like that, where it's people telling true stories. I would encourage as well, though, the sports coaches to read some traditional stories just for structure. Things like Aesop's Fables, I mean, they're a paragraph long and they're perfect stories. You've got a beginning, middle and end. You've got, you've got your characters, you've got your setting, you've got your problem, you've got your solution. All happens in seven sentences. It's, it, it's worth reading whether or, not you under, like, whether or not you like folktales or not. Things like that are just, they embed that structure back into your psyche. So I would say always go back to the source for that stuff. 
and then come find me and we'll build a round table of sports people and we'll 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 just build our own book or podcast of sports stories because i i haven't come across it yet and i if someone out there listening to your podcast has access to it or they know like because there's people who've written stories from within the world of soccer or within the world of baseball but what i'm interested in is let's get an anthology together so maybe it already exists so that that's further reading and then what i'm up to i've just finished the nhs residency so i'm going to be thinking about which residency to do next year if you know in terms of like which sector to work with i'm still working on mission critical my most exciting news is i'm premiering my new show in november and it's called the nine muses of queen's crescent and it's about well it's about a lot of things about memory language technology and the brain and how how our relationship to language affects our relationship to memory so that's where my creative brain is going and I suppose just come find me on all the usuals. I'm Story Claire everywhere. So Story Claire on LinkedIn, Story Claire on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm always interested in the big conversations. So comply me with questions. Claire, brilliant. Thank you. And if that anthology doesn't exist, I think this is the moment to start it. You and me, Tom. We'll kick it off. We're on it. We're on it. Uh, Claire, thanks again. It's been a brilliant 45 minutes or so. And um Thank you for all your time as well. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.